Welcome to Renegade Inc. We always hear that the business world is dog eat dog. But when did you last see a dog eating a dog? Dogs, like humans, are pack animals who seek cooperation and loyalty. So now that we can't afford the corporate dog fight anymore, should we look to the cooperative movement to create the brave new workplace? joke about the cooperative movement is that uh, it's not very cooperative and it doesn't move very much. Is that fair? No. <laughs> I think the old joke is partly because people, you know, especially in modern Western world, people really were not taught, trained to accept cooperation, to do it well, and to respect it. I actually blame kindergarten Why? partly because Why? to me kindergarten is like the epitome of how we beat cooperation out of children right. and expect and that's part of like if you think about what you need to graduate from kindergarten it's all the stuff that stops kids from being human and cooperating in that sense and what are those right i mean they want you to cooperate while you play nicely yeah. but they don't want you right if you talk to somebody else during school that's cheating right you're not supposed to ask anyone else's opinion or find out anything else from somebody so you're cheating if you collaborate or cooperate or talk to somebody right if you say something different from what the teacher taught you or told you then you're being insubordinate right either behavioral wise or intellectually because you're supposed to regurgitate what you learned and these are all skills that you're learning in kindergarten right that's why they pass you to first grade because you've learned how to do this you learn to be an individual to just regurgitate what the teacher told you to not talk or collaborate with your friends or partners and so f from early on we're taught it's not good to cooperate right. and then when we try to do it economically later we're also laughed at and told we're foolish because who would act that way? <laughs> and so that's why we make jokes about it. But actually the people who cooperate, they spend time learning how to make decisions together. They actually make better decisions that two heads are better than one actually works in cooperatives. Mm -hmm. And we find we're more productive both economically and socially. But that depiction of kindergarten, is that true today? Because, for instance, when I look at kindergartens uh, in the UK, the idea of collaboration is, is way more uh, embraced than it was. I mean, is that, are you depicting a, a, a kindergarten, for instance, you know, 20, 30 years ago? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think you're right that there's a, a little bit more respect, especially in radical pedagogy for collaborative learning. People are starting to understand it. In some ways, they're trying to get you back to it in high school because they know you're gonna to have to do some collaboration to work in the workforce. But I don't think there's a real reverence for real consensus building cooperation. I still think that even in education, there's like a, a box for it. Like it's okay to do it here and here, but it's not really okay to do it in your whole life or to be it, to exist for that. And what's the ideology behind it? Because it's very easy to reach for uh, neoliberalism and neoclassical economics to say that we are self-serving, profit-maximizing, rational individuals, and actually that's how human beings work. But we know that that simply isn't the case because we, we have watched various people around the world blow up and we see it on a regular basis when they dedicate themselves to themselves and we see what that uh, the effect that that has on society. What's driving this? 
I think there's a couple of things. I think it's easier to control people if you make them think it's me against the world and I've got to do it myself. You can control people in two ways. One, you know, collective action is so much stronger than individual action. So you stop people from actually making change through collective action mm. because they don't believe in it mm -hmm. or they don't see that it could work because they've been taught or trained. But also there's this weird tension in economics, right? Because on the one hand, technically, we're supposed to be these individualistic grasping for ourselves and, you know, they've rationalized that that makes a good economy, but yet the world of business and production is actually moving more toward teamwork and collaboration, and collaboration mm. but within boundaries. So I think the tension is also the other problem, right? You sort of want to teach them that it's going to be okay when a supervisor tells you to collaborate, mm -hmm. but you're not supposed to do it on your own, right. right? And then if you work with other people on your own, then you're being subversive, right? right. right? And so there's that tension. So I think that's, that's what's happening. So in some ways we're seeing that we have to get people working together, but we're trying to contain it. And a different way of going about this idea is it the, and I'll paraphrase it, the African proverb, if you want to go quickly, go on your own. If you want to go far, go together. Right. Is that broadly it? Yeah. And I think that's what we're starting to all learn, or some of us are learning, especially when you look at, especially since the Great Recession, at least that the U.S. had, I guess the world had it too. People really, I think, are a little bit more critical now. Maybe the way we've been trying to do stuff, you know, the Horatio Alger myth is really a myth and not something we can aspire to. We've got to figure out our own way. Figuring out our own way means we need to actually collaborate. Sometimes when I start my workshops on cooperatives and stuff, I really talk to people about, you're already living a collaborative solidarity life in some ways because we're human beings so think about it i mean you're already bartering right don't you drive your friend's kid to school and then they do it the next day or somebody babysits while you go to the hairdresser and then you take everybody to soccer and mm. sometimes we do collective meals i mean there's lots of stuff that we do already so it's not really that we have to learn it we have to learn that it's okay and it's smart to do it. So it's a shift in our mentality more than anything mentality, else. Shift in mentality, right. Because and we've had 40 years of a diet of extreme capitalism. Right. And, and just looking around New York uh, and looking at the infrastructure and looking at uh, your country, uh, you can clearly see that the last working. 40 years have been really detrimental. Right, yeah, it's uh, not working for the everyday those, person. Right. Especially to those who can least afford it. Right, and so the winners are taking all, all the spoils and leaving everybody else out, and there's really no place, and we've got to create our own. Mm. And we've got to create our own as a collective because we can't afford to be fighting with each other over little stuff because that's how they keep winning. Sometimes I talk about, well, let's get your children, get the youth involved in a co-op first, even if the parents can't do it because the young people can do a bunch of stuff as cooperators. One, they can bring a little income to themselves and their families, especially by the time they're in high school. Two, they can actually, often the co-ops that they start are solving community problems that they noticed as kids, as young people, and so they're addressing a community problem. And three, once they start getting involved in co-ops, of course their parents or most parents are going to get interested or involved or try to take 
some time to yeah. understand. So one of my strategies is to actually say, well, let's, let's help the young people. So it's an oblique sale. You're solving the problem indirectly. Right. And therefore heading off the sort of the clashing of heads to say, right. look, we can't do this because right. there is a lot of inertia. And there's also a lot of fear. Well, there's a lot of fear and a lot of frustration and stress, right? People are stressed and traumatized. This whole society is stressing and traumatizing all of us, mm. but especially people who are really trying to make ends meet. Mm. And so again, trying to figure out how do we talk about the positives? How do we show people that they already have assets, even though they're not the traditional financial assets that they think of, but assets of their human power, their friendships, their relationships, their children, right? That that those assets can help them to do something better and to change slowly. And also the thing about slow is really important. Why? They don't have to wake up one morning and suddenly be a cooperator or suddenly start a co-op. They need to first recognize, as I said, what they're already doing and who they already are, that they can do more and better. They can start to see small, like little things, even if it's not actually a co-op, just little solidarity, little acts of solidarity that they and their children are involved in and slowly see examples of different ways they can do things, different things they can get involved in. The slow point is really interesting because what you're actually uh, saying implicit in that is that the most precious resource in the world isn't capital, uh, it's time and therefore labor. So bringing the slow aspect back to it, uh, if you think about a diametrically opposed idea there, it's private equity, where we get as much capital as we can together, we right, go and own labor zoom, and, and, right. and then look at the state of the planet, because right. ultimately the destruction that comes to people and, uh, and the environment is and massive, environment, right. but share right. prices look all right. right? right. And, and that's been the last 40 years, that's been very much the uh, narrative right. the last and it's not years. sustainable. I mean, maybe 40 years is a long time, but it's not sustainable. We right. can't keep going like this. Right. Between but the, the planet destruction, but also the human stress and trauma, I don't think as a society we can keep treating people like this. So you're not surprised that the over that period of time uh, that the use of antidepressants and, and uh, all these drugs to keep people on that treadmill, you're not surprised that not all those all. graphs have gone in one direction? Right, not at all. I don't know how else we can survive this. But that, to me, is another imperative for why we have to, why I keep pushing this model and why I keep saying we can do it, because we have to believe that there's another way, right? I try to find the examples so that people can see there's another way. And I try to find examples that aren't like the most shiny, this foundation gave $2 million so these people could do. I try to sell the stuff where people, you know, pulled $100 here or there, put in $10 a week, that mm. kind of thing. Mm. And then we're able to leverage that to something else where mm. they, you know, did some little small thing, a buying club in their neighborhood, and then did something beyond that. But they people, just met in study groups first. And, you know, because to show people that we can, you just got to do one thing first. Right, but people forget, I mean, you know, they point to places like Mondragon, which is a very famous co-op right. uh, in the Basque Country, Northern Spain. And uh, actually the uh, Catholic priest. Um, right, they forget how it started. Well, so he right. post-Franco right. walked around with a Hessian bag, getting a few dollars together from locals who all had shared interests. Right. And now, many, many decades, or a few decades later, you have Mondragon. It's a huge, right, which is vast. multi-million dollars. But that's the definition of entrepreneurship, isn't it? Yes, just the beginning and starting small. And again, Father Arismendi Ariata in Mondragon, it was actually a school he started. Right, so it's an education first, process. Right, and, and by the way, the I'm delighted need. that you pronounced his name because I was going to try it. <laughs> um, but he started that as an educational establishment. Right. Um, and every Sunday morning talked to everybody about the principles, not rules, the right. principles of how to create 
value. Mm -hmm. And then created a school owned and controlled by the parents and the students to do that. And then his first graduates actually created the first co-op that becomes the Mondragon Co-op. So again, it's this connection, as you said, the connection with people, the connection, talking, education. The research I've done on African-American cooperatives, after I got about five years into the research, I started trying to look at trends and I was like, oh my gosh, every one of these started with a study group. People just came together and said, we've got problems, what should we do? Somebody in the group had heard about a co-op or knew about somebody else's co-op and said, oh, maybe we should think about a co-op. They started learning and teaching themselves about co-ops and moved from there. And so again, that's why I keep saying you just have to take one step, one step at a time. It's not like you have to wake up the next morning and have a whole co-op or a whole set of co-ops and have a million dollars. In fact, those I don't think work as well because I think the process, people going through the process, right, learning by doing, making the road as we travel, right, that's where the longevity is. That's where the sustainability is, is because we're all doing this. We're learning together, we're creating together, we're building step by step. It's not something just dropped down from above that we're supposed to participate in. The irony is that capitalism can't afford competition anymore. Right, and not even anymore. The research I did on black co-ops from the 1800s, white capitalists and white supremacists were trying to stop them because they were doing alternatives to using their store, their bank, et cetera, and they couldn't stand it. Even though these are just little poor, formerly enslaved sharecroppers and stuff, but they couldn't stand the fact that they would mass their own stuff and not need them or not use their store, or not work their land or that kind of thing. And so they did everything they could to stop it. It's, I mean, a really sad story in that sense, but it's a wonderful story in terms of the persistence and resilience that people continued to cooperate even though they could get lynched, their crops could be burned, their store could be burned down, but they kept doing it. We're sitting here uh, in America, which, as you know, uh, your homeland. Belly of the beast. Belly of the beast, but also land of the free. <laughs> but the obvious contradiction is that per capita, you have the greatest prison population on the planet. Right. And we were called the land of the free, even though we enslaved millions of people for 200 years or something. Right. One of the focuses of your work is to use cooperatives within the prison system to educate and to give freedom and meaning to people who have been incarcerated. Why do you think that that model fits perfectly or fits at all to the American prison complex? The prison system is actually the only place in the U.S. Constitution where you can still have slavery, enslavement. So we already have most marginal, unfree people in a country, as you say, that considers itself land of the free. So there's already a huge contradiction there. We also, with the highest prison population, we also have a high amount of people of color in prison, a high amount of people who are really in prison only because of mental illness and addiction, mm -hmm. not because of violent crimes. I think is only, what, 10 or 5%, something small for violent crimes. So we've got a population who's the most oppressed, the most marginalized, basically enslaved. And again, going back to the history I did of African-American cooperatives, that's how they started with people who were the most marginalized using cooperation to survive, both to feed their families, to gain some dignity, to mitigate discrimination and oppression, 
And so when I was thinking of sort of where's the next frontier mm. for the U.S., it really is prison. And then I found out that other countries actually already had much more enlightened policies, especially even allowing imprisoned people to own their own businesses and co-ops. Mm. And actually the very first place I learned a lot about this was Puerto Rico, which is a colony of the U.S. Mm. Um, but Puerto Rican state law has allowed imprisoned people to own their own worker co-ops. They actually had to petition to get the law changed so that they could because originally Puerto Rican co-op law did not allow incarcerated people to own a co-op. And what's the effect of that been when you look to them as a case study, if you like? So one, it shows that we can do it in the U.S. because technically it's, fed it's U.S. federal jurisdiction. So it's more about the will rather than the way or whatever. But also what I love about that example is how empowering it is for the worker owners, the incarcerated people who own their own worker cops. One, the fact that they were able to petition the government to change the law so that they could. Right. Two, that they even knew that co-op economics was how they wanted to do something while they were in prison. And three, the fact of being co-op owners has enabled them to help support their families, right. to pay back the restitution, to give them dignity and humanity while they're still in prison, etc. So this has created a virtuous circle as opposed to the vicious circle. Exactly. Because what you see in the US at the moment are a great percentage of the uh, prison industrial complex, if you like, are right. for-profit prisons. Right. And they know, uh, those shareholders and those managers, those executives know that a coal bed is losing money. You know, so guards often say uh, when uh, an inmate is released, uh, they refer to the inmates as customers and they say, see you again soon. Right. Because yeah. they know ultimately, they, right. that from the guard's point of that view, model, that they want them back. Right. right. And they're they economic, need them back. They right. need it. And it's, that's, right. That's it. So they're not doing anything. They're just punishing them. They're not doing anything to really rehabilitate them or to equip them to go back out. And so, of course, if they go back out, the recidivism rates are high everywhere. How do you land your message when there's such cynicism around people's behavior, their economics are stacked against prison cooperatives? How do you land that message and start to say, uh, actually, this is a better alternative? Because you're going to come in to, uh, for an awful lot of flack. Well, it's very hard and slow, and I'm just starting in the U.S. So the first thing was to actually amass the research, right? Who's doing it well? That's where I started to look at the Italian model. The Italians are doing it well. The Swedish, Ethiopians, Uruguayans. So I'm trying to get the facts because I'm also a researcher. That's how I operate. Well, and the Americans are last of the party on this. <laughs> this is <laughs> no, unusual. No, we're the Yeah, no. Canada's even doing so it. So you're leading the world. No, we don't lead in anything. Not in any of the good stuff. Sorry. <laughs> so you're getting um, the research. So I, get, I do the research, right? The second thing I've been doing is trying to find audiences who will be receptive. So one of the things I started to do in my uh, university, actually, we have a prison to college pipeline where we do teach inside a couple of the prisons in New York State. And so I joined that program and started teaching incarcerated men because I also wanted to see would they be receptive to learning about cooperatives and thinking about co-op ownership. And it turned out they're really interested and excited. Mm -hmm. I also started partnering with the Black Prisoners Caucus out in Washington State and with a colleague of mine who's a lawyer, reparations law in Washington State. They've been looking at what are the laws in Washington State, in the state prisons, that might allow incarcerated people to at least own their own businesses. And if they allow them to own their own businesses, could they be co-ops? And then what's the co-op law? So they're doing some legal research, so I've connected with them. 
and also been talking to the Black Prisoners Caucus there about would co-ops be a good option for them. So that's the next thing. I think that's the easier part. Mm. What's, now, what's the wicked problem? Well, the wicked problem is changing the minds of corrections departments, corrections offices, changing the laws if we need to actually change federal and state laws to allow this. I'm not so worried about the general public because I think they'll be happy with the lower recidivism rate and better functioning returning citizens that's or whatever. That's an easy sell. Right. I think eventually that's an easy sell. At first they're wary because they don't want to put any money into it, but I think when they see, especially since uh, Obama, there's lots more people are getting out. And so I think they'd rather see people getting out in good shape and prepared to be do and participate in society rather than people getting out who are just being prepared to go back in. So I think that part, I think it's really the um, corrections system or whatever, the people who have trained themselves that this is, you know, that we should think about these inmates as animals. I think they're going to be the hardest. So I've been trying to work all around them get incarcerated people themselves, get the people that support incarcerated people, get people who are looking at previously incarcerated people and how to support them because it, you can do a seamless worker co-ops in and out with that group. And then legislators would be the next thing to try to get law changed. The thing that's also interesting in the Puerto Rican model, which is the one I know the best, is they actually were able to convince the corrections department because they actually bring money in to the system. Mm. The largest worker co-op and the oldest one they've got actually pays 15% of its profits every year to uh, the corrections office. And they pay them rent, they pay them all kinds of stuff. They pay them for extra security when they go out to sell their wares because it's an arts co-op. So anyway, so the, the prison's actually making money off of them. Right and it keeps actually some of the incarcerated people have actually become more less of a behavioral problem in the prison since joining the co-op. It's interesting that you use, you talk about money because uh, it's such a one-dimensional metric you know money it brings in money but that other point which is a little more subtle and nuanced um, which is behavior starts behavior, to get better yeah. when you give uh, meaning and purpose right so suddenly what you're doing is you are uh, again, obliquely saying, we're going to create value. Right. And when you start to create value mm -hmm. every day, yeah. you're going to start feeling better about it yourself because you get up in the morning, right. something doesn't exist, you make it, you go to bed at night, you feel good. Right. If you could then hop over to the private equity capitalist system, you're a cog in a wheel for a billionaire class. Right. And you never see the start, the middle or the end of a process. And, you right. just go in, just clock in. the in, middle. And you're and barely making ends meet, right. but you're watching them get more have, wealthy get more and, and, more wealthy, and the inequality right. grows and right. all the rest of it. So no wonder uh, that the, the co-op movement at, as it stands today um, is sneered at because what we as a society, and I can see this acutely in the US, is we haven't redefined success. Right. So Jeff Bezos is apparently successful. Yeah. And you know, I was at a meeting of some wealthy blacks. This is probably almost 18 years ago. And the guy that I was sitting next to was a banker, and he was asking me about my work, and I was just getting into the co-op stuff. And he was sneering and laughing at me, and then he was like, and I would never share my financial decisions with a group of people, you know. So I told him, well, actually, he wasn't one of the people I was worried about. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that he really didn't need a co-op if he didn't want one. I was more worried about the people who can't feed their children and who, if they put in a dollar with everybody else's dollar, could get some fresh vegetables that week and could move up into something more. Mm. And what does um, this Anne Randian type guy, what did he, he say just, to he that? He just laughed. He was like, oh, 
fine. Because again, it was seen as piddly, small, piddly thing. And if you want to worry about the poorest of the poor and waste your time, fine. That's why I said, I think when it gets bigger and bolder, that maybe there'll be more obvious ways to stop it. Right now, they sort of, I see them as sort of seeing it as throwing some crumbs to the very poor. And as long as it doesn't really rock the larger boat, they don't really care. But I also want to turn it around. I really would rather talk about why ordinary people and people of color would actually want to do the co-ops. I'm not so much worried about whether the big capitalists, what they care about. I know eventually we have to deal with them. But I also learned from my research with black co-ops that if you have a strong enough movement with resilient people whose community understands them, that people will rally to protect the co-op and the fledgling solidarity activities. And so that's what I really focus more on. How do we make sure that the communities that I'm working in understand this model, even if they don't want to be part of it, they understand it and want to help protect it. And the people who want to be part of it learn enough to start moving forward even in whatever small ways as we talked about earlier. Mm. And to me, that's the power. And I do see it. I see more and more every year in the United States, more and more people ask me to come speak about this. I see more and more co-ops starting, especially in communities of color. I see more and more talk about how can we do this in a good way? What are the kind of structures? What are the things we need to know so we can do it better? And that's the part that keeps me going and that I get excited about because it's really wonderful to see more and more people say, yeah, maybe we should do this. This is worth a try. We should at least learn enough about it to think about how to transform into those kind of models. Jessica Gordon-Nemhard, thank you very much for your time.